I'm Carrie Bickmore. Welcome to Brains Trust. In this podcast, we will enlist the country's most interesting, funny and often complex people to help us reflect and understand our lives a little better. They aren't experts necessarily, but they all have curious minds, big brains and love a laugh. This Brains Trust of well-known Australians has been gathered together by journalist and producer Chris Walker. Hi, Carrie. Who are we here from, Chris? I've spoken to people that I admire, people that I care about and people that I work with. I'm Chris Brown. I'm a, uh, a veterinarian. My name's Adam Briggs. I'm a Yoda Yoda man. I'm Ryan Chang. I'm a stand-up comedian. Uh, my name's Annabelle Crabb. I'm Willie Dali. Hello, I'm Kitty Flanagan. My name's Hamish Blake. I am a first-year apprentice homeschool teacher. Each episode will move between these awesome guests, like an eavesdrop on the ultimate conversation. So before we bury 2020 deep in our memory, we're going to walk through it all again and see how it changed us and what we learnt along the way. Let's continue Season 1 of Brains Trust. In this episode, we'll be talking about science and conspiracy theories and why they seem to be becoming more popular. But what we're really talking about is trust. Do we trust our scientists to solve the pandemic? Can we trust the news? Do we trust Elon Musk to get us to the moon? Why do so many people trust conspiracy theories? Can we trust our machines that run our lives? Can we trust that we are safe? Waleed Ali thinks deeply about these things and Chris had an interesting observation to run past him. From the layman's observation, it feels like terrorism had a bit of a buy in the Western world this year. <laughs> that it was like, hey guys, there's a there's a pathogen out there, let's just have a spell. Mm. Is that a fair observation? Well, it's clearly not a fair observation now because you're just seeing no, I mean, it's, yeah. it's reared up again, which is what I was going to get to. But for the... Yeah. Um, yeah, it probably is, but I don't think it was a buy for this year. Um, I don't think it was about lockdowns, although lockdowns, no doubt, you know, I mean, all kinds of crime were down, right, um, as a result of lockdowns. So I guess you could extrapolate from that and say that terrorism might have been part of it. Um, I think you've sort of seen this tapering off for quite a while. I think the fall of ISIS was part of that. Um, some of the failure of the promise of ISIS was was part of that as well. And so you kind of got a bit of this lull, I think. It's sort mm. of symbolic power might have diminished a fraction, but clearly it's it's coming back. Um, it's sort of starting to, to ramp up. But I think you've also seen this um, rise of the extremism of the far right now. Um, mm. So that's obviously been visible in America and uh, Europe's part of that story. And then even in Australia, um, I don't know if anyone paid attention to it because everyone was focused on the pandemic, but ASIO came out with this statement, um, might have even been in Senate estimates or something, where they said that they've noticed um, increased far-right activity. The pandemic is part of that. So actually what happens is you get the the conditions the pandemic creates, including economic conditions like recession or depression, um, and then also just the stress of the pandemic is like really like ripe conditions for an explosion of extremism. And so we're starting to see that on the far right. You've seen that in sort of softer ways with the conspiracy theorising around the virus. Tell me a little bit about the conspiracy theories and, and their connection to terrorism. Oh, conspiracy theory by definition is this belief that nothing is accidental and everything is connected. And once you start talking 
in those sorts of terms, you start to believe that there is something or someone that's in control and that thing and that like that thing is in, that is in control is oppressive and therefore must be resisted or fought. And so that can take all kinds of forms. Your fight could take the form of Facebook posts or it could take the form of protests in the streets uh, or it could take the form of sending messages asking people in your WhatsApp groups to take the red pill and see reality. Um, but, of course, another way of dealing with that system of oppression that you're identifying is through violent action. So very few would go to that level or adopt an ideology that says that that's the way to respond, but that's always the way with terrorism, right? It's a very small number of people who get to that point, but it usually sits on top of a much broader set of dynamics that are shared by a lot more people that would never even think about the violent aspect of it. So I don't know that you can say that terrorism is always connected to conspiratorial thinking, but it is definitely true that conspiratorial thinking um, is radicalising. Like by definition, it's radical, right? You, you, you sort of critiquing and questioning the system and the roots of everything as you as you go through life. So let me come back to terrorism just for one second. I just want to stay on conspiracy theories for one minute because they were kind of fairly prevalent this year with, you know, 5G yeah. and Pete Evans and um, QAnon. Yeah. So someone who's under the spell of a conspiracy theory like QAnon, which in a nutshell is a far-right theory that there is a cabal of satanic pedophiles running a global sex trafficking network and plotting against Donald Trump, which is just so mad. Yeah. What what has happened psychologically to A, get them there, but also maintain it? I've thought a bit about conspiracy theories and I've tried to figure out what makes them appealing. And I, the thing I come back to is that it's about control and the loss of it. So to the extent that the pandemic was an experience of people losing control, of their lives and feeling like they are out of control. No, not just their liberty, but like a major thing is happening to them and they have no answer to it. There is nothing they can do. They can't just, you know, hire a tradie to fix it or get the government to make it go away or like it's coming and you don't have a say in that fact, right? And it will deeply affect your life. When you, when you break that down and think about what that's like to experience, particularly if you've lived your life consciously or otherwise under this mythology of being in control of things, then it makes sense that when that illusion is shattered, it's deeply disconcerting. Like it's, it's kind of, it's an existential level of anxiety that that creates in people, right? To talk, for example, about the way that different religious traditions embrace the idea that we're not in control, thats that becomes a buffer against that sort of thing, right? Or other people might just be a bit more zen about these things and they're just like, okay, we'll lose control and that'll be that. There are people whose dispositions are such that they go, wow, this is going to be a hard time and they grit their teeth and they figure out a way to go through it. Or they express their lack of control in other ways, like going out and buying lots of toilet paper, right? Because <laughs> now that sounds silly, but I suspect that's what was going on there. The toilet paper probably doesn't actually help you, but it, it's like, I'm in control of this. I, you know, whatever happens, this is sorted. I've done a thing that sorts a thing in my life. That's mm. not an unimportant thing, really, if you contemplate life without toilet paper. So mm. you know, I think this we're looking for different ways of control. What a conspiracy theory does, I've always found paradoxical because it gives you a reason for your lack of control. That is, we don't have control in our lives because there's this cabal that is controlling things. 
um, and they're controlling things in nefarious ways for their own nefarious purposes, um, which I've always thought, the question I've then asked myself is, well, how does that help you deal with the lack of control? All it's doing is explaining how invincible your lack of control is. But then maybe actually what the benefit of it is psychologically is that you may not have control, but the narrative that you're spinning means that someone does. So there is control still. Someone or something is in control. This thing is ordered. And then maybe if we can deal with that, we can take back control. So maybe the appeal is that it gives you a sense that control still exists, but also a pathway back to having control yourself. That That's the best I've been able to do. Am I meant to understand it in that it's in a spectrum? Like, you know, someone who believes that climate change isn't real to someone who believes that Hillary Clinton's cutting up people and eating them on pizza. Yeah. Are we on the, are we on the same spectrum there or? Uh, you might be on the same spectrum, but that doesn't mean that they're um, all concerning. <laughs> Although I would say both of those examples are concerning, um, mm. just to use those examples. But, you know, I think we're all, there's this sort of really delicate balance, I reckon, between conspiracy theory and healthy skepticism. <laughs> mm. Like Part of the attraction of a conspiracy theory, I think, is also this feeling that you're not being duped, that mm. um, you, you have your eyes open, um, even if other people don't. And that, that can make you feel quite special because you can see things that other people either can't or won't see. But also it is, I think, increasingly part of our culture that we want to present ourselves to the world and even to ourselves as being savvy, right? So if the government says X, whatever government and about whatever thing, I think we do often, um, unless we have partisan reasons not to, we very often respond with, hmm, really? Yeah, but, you know. And to some extent, democracy relies on that kind of scepticism. But there's obviously a tipping point where scepticism stops being healthy and it starts being deranged. Yeah. So at the risk of being conspiratorial here and connecting everything, <laughs> how do we connect all of this to, say, our reliance or our adherence to science? I mean, if, if ever there's been a year where we want the scientists to yeah. bail us out, it just feels like there may be a push towards denying or, or at least doubting the scientific method. So I think we need to be careful here because in the context of responding to a pandemic, there's actually no such thing as just pure science. Like there's scientific input, there's scientific insight, but what you're actually dealing with are things like modelling and then things like political, philosophical, even moral decisions about what to do, right? Science might tell you how a virus is likely to spread, but it doesn't tell you whether or not it's worthwhile to pay the economic and psychological cost of a lockdown to avoid that spread. That's a question for politics, philosophy, so on. Trusting science, trusting politicians, or even trusting something presented as a fact is getting harder, as Chris and Hamish Blake are both finding. It's more apparent to me this year than ever before that people are operating with two distinct versions of reality. Mm. Massively. And when you get into that world, there's no cross-reference. If you can't agree that gravity's a thing... Exactly. Then you can't agree that which ball's going to go further. And, exactly. and so 
I love, of course, like I think, you know, open debate and rigorous exchange of ideas is like critical to a society and an open and a and free democracy. But those debates used to be played on a field where the, the borders were, you know, agreed upon. And I think everyone feels the pressure to think that that's the point of every conversation is to be an expert. And it's not. But but somehow I think with social media has become this thing where it's like like you know debate in in this day and age is a war of the of like just sometimes just made up facts and 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 then well, it and then it's 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 super pointless. So it's not you don't have anyone listening to each other. You just have people trying to like outgun each other in this race to be considered the best expert. How do you feel about the idea that more people believe in just nonsense and that Mm. there's a generalised loss of trust in science and facts generally? I guess it's so frustrating to to the rest of us because you want to argue science against it. But their whole thing that when someone goes, "Uh you know, science is a scam, it really... It's a real perfect system they've got where you where you just can't be proved wrong. Like if if to a flat earther you, I mean, I've never really met a flat earther, but you, you know, your fantasy is always to just like all you want is just be like get. I wish NASA would just get one, take them up on a rocket, and point out the window, like show them the ball. <laughs> and, and I, and even then though they'd go, I mean, a simulator or whatever. Like they wouldn't play yeah. ball. Like I don't agree, but I don't agree on the fact that I entered a spaceship just now. I, I'm not agreeing on that fact. Like they just won't agree on the facts. So you know that fantasy is not going to happen. And also, I don't know how NASA would clear the budget to just go. Now we're just doing space missions to, to, to annoy <laughs> flat earthers. To annoy flat earthers, <laughs> but it's just that. Like I think that's that's. So there's this weird like. Um, I don't know. There's this weird, it frustrates the shit out of the rest of us and there's a weird glee, I think, from conspiracy theorists to go, I think it comes down to like a, a human need to feel like an expert or to be right. Like the lure of being an expert and the lure of having people's attention and the lure of saying shit like the earth is flat and, and it getting an emotional response out of people because then you're like, great, this, this is a much better feeling than I've ever got in my life before. Everyone's listening to me. And all I had to do was just say something. I didn't have to go to university. I didn't have to like spend four years becoming an expert. I didn't have to climb to the top of any field. I just uh, adopted a controversial view and now I'm an expert. And maybe after living in that world for so long, you get convinced that the reason you're getting such a fierce reaction from people is because you're right. Mm. I think you just buy into the delusion after a while. And part of the reason that delusion can exist is the increased siloed way people consume their media as explained by Annabelle Crabb. One of the reasons that it's not possible to have a rational debate about one issue or another, and this is clearly made out in the attempts that they had at, you know, presidential debates, which were profoundly useless, is that (laughs) in order to have a discussion, you know, about an issue, you first have to have a little patch of territory on which you can meet, right, like on which you agree, you know, like you have to have a set of principles which are not in dispute so that you can hop onto that. A shared reality. You and your your opponent and then, you know, see what you can do to reach agreement on this other thing. But that is just not the case, I think, increasingly in the States, and this is all about media. I mean, there's a huge, I finished during the campaign this great book by Brian Stelter, um, who's an analyst on CNN um, and uh, the New York Times. He's a sort of media writer. 
And he wrote this book called Hoax, which is about the relationship between the Trump um, office and Fox News. And it's really clear that Fox has been a, a massively successful media experiment, but it's also turned into this political phenomenon, right? Like it's created this really significant army of viewers who are hugely engaged, who don't get their news from anywhere else, and who, you know, on um, being provoked will hop up and go to a rally or, you know, actually sort of jump into action. And the overlap between those people and the people who are watching CNN or whatever is, like, minimal. So Mm. you actually have two bits of the Venn diagram that don't really overlap at all. And if you, I don't know if you listened to that podcast um, called The Rabbit Hole that that Mm -hmm. came out earlier this year, that's about, um, you know, a whole generation of consumers who don't watch TV at all but who um, get all of their content from YouTube, which specialises in seeing um, what you've watched and then pointing you towards more things that you might like which is, has a um, essentially a radicalising um, effect because if you've watched 10 Jordan Peterson um, videos, then it'll, you know, slot you into something a little more hardcore. So that's the way that algorithm works. But what it does in the end is create these communities of people who are profoundly convinced that their universe is a full one and the people that they listen to or, you know, watch represent the fullness of human experience but actually they're just living in this little bit over over there um and would be shocked to know that other people feel differently so if our theme today is trusting the science we're putting a lot of that trust in elon musk whose company SpaceX this year completed a test commercial flight to the International Space Station in the hope of returning people to the moon and beyond. But Ronnie Cheng thinks some of that shine might have rubbed off Mr Musk. I remember with Elon Musk, there was a period when the media really loved him because he, he was seen as like this um, disruptive force for like an admirable disruptive force. He was get, he, Because, you know, he was doing... <laughs> he was make, trying to make cars cleaner. He was uh, trying to harness solar power. You know, he's trying to solve a lot of world problems um, in a good way. And then, uh, yeah, he he kind of is one of those dudes who just says what he what he thinks on his mind. And so, I guess the media turned on him a little bit. So it's been interesting kind of seeing that journey of him of like this environmentalist essentially, and then he's also like weirdly environmentalist and Republican, like pro-commercial, you know, um, and the human mind or the U.S. political spectrum doesn't know how to account for that, right? When you have, when you're, when you're more than one thing, when you're a multitude, they kind of want to fit you into these boxes. And so he's interesting that he's a little difficult to, to put into any one box. And he's also interesting because he's got so much money that he doesn't need to care, kind of. Mm. You know, I'm sure he. I'm sure he cares about his how he's perceived um, in some way, but at the same time, you can't really cancel this guy. I think so. Um, I think, and he kind of revels in that a little bit. You know, another fun story that happened this year was they did the first test flight for a commercial trip to the moon. Mm. My question, Ronnie, is: Would you go? No, no, I won't go to the moon. Uh, <laughs> I got no interest in going to the moon. There's no interest in going to the moon. 
Yeah, like what, what's what's on the moon? Jesus. <laughs> Why would you go to the moon? What is there? There's nothing there. It's like Delaware. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By the way, yo, you don't just go to the moon. Like, did you watch Apollo 13? Is that this shit? Did you- that, this isn't a this isn't a tram ride down Swanson Street. This is like there's you're you're on a you're on like a bomb flying into the sky, and if anything goes wrong, you might die in the sky, or you might land and then something goes wrong, and you might not be able to come back. And you might die on the moon. You could die coming back. You could die landing. It's dangerous. <laughs> so I'm, I'm okay with not going. So Ronnie doesn't trust Elon to get him to the moon. And Kitty Flanagan doesn't trust him to choose a baby's name. Called his kid X, Digraph AE, which is like when you join an AE together. A hyphen 12. That's what he called his kid. Cute. <laughs> <laughs> Do you reckon it'll be popular like Kylie? You know, like when someone like, you know, Charlotte became popular when... Mm. The royals named their kid Charlotte. I mean, it's hard Archie to... Archie will be popular now. Do you reckon X-12 oh, will become popular? It'd be funny if they, if people did start calling their kids that because they obviously wanted it to be so original and unique. Yeah, It'd be great be... if a whole bunch of people yeah. just went, let's let's call our kids that too. Just to piss off the musks. <laughs> <laughs> would you go to the moon? Well, yeah, would I go to the moon? Walks, you'd have to give me a list of people who are going to be there because my theory on the moon is, sure, let's go to the moon, but I only want to take people who think the same way as me. <laughs> well, like so- that would be the whole reason to leave the earth is so that, oh, I've had enough of all these people that disagree with me or that do stupid things or whatever. So I just want to go to the moon with only like-minded folk. So basically I've just described Twitter. <laughs> you just, you, that, that's just where you just shout at like-minded folk, isn't it, and just get your opinion uh, just validated by other people who think like you. So, yeah, maybe I'll retract that and go, no, I don't want to go to the moon because it would just be like being on Twitter all the time. It's clearly Twitter's lost that you're not on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel about artificial intelligence generally? Because I know you love your dishwasher. <laughs> I honestly the question was going to be artificial insemination. I was really preparing an answer going, God, I didn't think it was going to go here. Um, artificial intelligence, what do you mean what do I think of it? Well, in your book you talk about how enamoured you are with the dishwasher. Oh, yeah, I really am. I love my dishwasher. But you know what else? I also love my saucepan. So you know, that, that's not artificially intelligent. I do have a favourite saucepan. When you and I really love it. I get excited when I go. Oh, I'm going to make it in that saucepan. When you die, I'm so. going to your gravesite and etching on. <laughs> this woman loved her saucepan. <laughs> no, and I want to be buried with it. Can you make yeah. sure that happens? Just, <laughs> Just cuddling to be buried, holding her saucepan. And so, in years when they dig me up, people will go, "Oh my god, they must have worshipped kitchen goods back then," and they'll be right. If there was one man of science I would have thought we could trust this year, it would have been Dr Chris Brown. But it turns out early in the pandemic, not so much. In about March, I made a real dick of myself by by saying, by saying that I said to a lot of people, you know what, now's a really good time to book a trip to Europe because I reckon science will, science will solve this one. We'll, we'll, have, a, we'll have treatments or, or, or the... 
the peak will have will have subsided and you'll be able to get great airfare deals to, to Italy for around about July, maybe even August if we're being pessimistic. I was, I was convinced that, that this would this would be over and done with in, in a couple of months. Mm. Um I was accepting of the severity of it, but I, I thought it would it would kind of do what SARS did, which was be serious, um, but but not have this this spread, not have the the contagious abilities, um, and and be as infective as 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 COVID's turned out to be. So, yeah, I, I, I and I thought, you know what, all that Amalfi Coast, all those places, never been. This is the time to go because no one else has booked it. I'm, I'm ahead of the curve here, like poor choice of word, but. I reckon I'm on. I'm on, to, I'm on to a good thing here, and, and this thing will have um, will have petered out by then. So I was I was wrong. I was absolutely wrong. The idea that science is going to fix everything is is a very interesting view to hold in a world where it feels like people less and less are giving due deference to science. Hmm. But isn't that isn't that remarkable? It's that classic human condition of of just going with the information or the opinion that suits you, your best possible outcome. And, and suits your own interests, and you know you can make a study look like anything you want um, if you if you handpick the data. So, I, I think people that are, are either COVID deniers or, or, or want to knock the severity of it, they, they can always find a stat or, or an opinion or, or a supposed expert that'll back them up, because because there's a full spectrum of, of different people and different viewpoints in any in any circle, and so um, people just go go for what what suits them and what, what gives them comfort and what allows them at, you know, eight or nine o'clock at night when they're sitting on the couch to, to feel better about the world and, and, and feel like everything's going to be okay. Is that any different than your faith that science will solve everything? Yeah, because you, you have a belief system that's based on fact. Um, and, and, you know, so science has developed techniques of verifying its findings Um and and you know you can get into into the intricacies of all the the reasons why, but yeah, it, it's well backed up that you need a certain percentage of, of things to to confirm that that suspicion for it to be considered scientific fact, and that's that's where I go, and that's 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 what I re, I rely on, and I, I think anytime you, you're ignoring that, um, it's it's probably a dangerous game, or you just you. You kind of, I think you, I think those people deep down know that they're, they're kind of fooling themselves. But but it, there's enough there's enough opinion to be that confirms their 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 supposed beliefs that they they can um, they can hang on to that and and feel like that they can sleep at night because someone else feels the same way. And that that's where the likes of Twitter are great because you can always find someone or Facebook. You can always find someone someone who shares your opinions and and. Um, and uh, and and then you recruit more and more and more, and then you you get you almost get your own little data set out of that 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 you have safety in numbers in in your opinion, and, and all of a sudden you feel like yeah, if all these if 152 of, of my Facebook friends in this group agree, then you know what we're, we're onto something here. This is this is real. We, we've got a we've got a genuine movement here. So wrapping up this episode on trust, Hamish Blake thinks there is one last group we shouldn't place any trust in our robot overlords. AI is a huge reason to be terrified of the future. Should we make something that in the morning won't be as smart as us, by lunchtime will be as smart as us, and then by midnight will be one trillion times smarter than us? Because I think, <laughs> to me, that's the scary... Like, we don't understand scale very well. And, I, and you know, I'm as guilty as this as any other human. We're not great at these scales that we're talking about. Like, 
technology has accelerated so fast that that's a scale that we were not used to. We've never been exposed to that level of technological acceleration in in history before. Like, you know, going from a sail ship to a steamship, I don't know, took hundreds of years and it wasn't that big an improvement. But going from the moon landing to like the biggest you know piece of AI we have now is about 50 years and that is a phenomenal step you know go, and going from the model T forward to the moon landing was a phenomenal step so we're like this acceleration that we're in of, of technology is insane to the point now where there's just a lot of stuff we don't understand like we readily people just the tons of AI and, and things that are happening in terms of programs and, and algorithmic learning that's written to teach itself and to learn itself that we just readily admit we don't understand how it's doing things, but it's doing them and that they're working. So that's great. So it, it might have already, that like with the, the toothpaste might already be out of the tube in one sense that it's too, that it's, that it's going so fast. But I, I don't think we get, and just from the little bit I've read, I'm interested in this world. You know, we haven't created a machine that's as smart as a human intelligence yet, but the danger is like it's going to keep making itself smarter. Once you set off that domino, it's actually going to start hitting bigger and bigger and bigger dominoes until Stonehenge is falling over. And then there is that real danger of going, we'll very, very, very quickly, we've been used to being the smartest species on the planet and we'll very, very quickly not be the smartest the most intelligent thing on the planet. The analogy that scared me, that made me kind of go, oh, yeah, right, was going, if we have this thing that even if it doesn't have, uh, even if it's not programmed to be menacing, it doesn't matter. Like we we, we, we run the risk if you create something this smart of just being irrelevant to it or of, or, or of as being seen as something that competes for its resources. If it needs power and space and we're this animal that's taking up power and space, I think that's the scary that's the scary version of reality where we're just a nuisance in the way that, like, say you were going to build a house and there was an ant hill there, you just kill the ant hill. Now, we don't hate ants, but they're in our way and we don't think about it, so we just we destroy the ant hill. That, that's, the, that's the danger of what humans could be to a super intelligent AI. That's it for Episode 5 of Brains Trust. Next time, we'll start doom-scrolling our social media feeds and discuss just how addicted we all are and whether it could well be the downfall of society. In 140 characters or less, of course. We're still developing the antibodies to deal with social media and the internet in 2020. And that's exactly what it is. We don't have full immunity, but we slowly, <laughs> we're slowly like figuring out like, we can recognize it like, oh, this is a troll. Oh, these people have been consumed by it. And yeah, sometimes we also get consumed by it, but I, I think there's a little bit more recognition that's when we next convene the Brains Trust. <laughs>